This is Rob from the Retro Junkies, and you are listening to Two Dudes and a Nintendo. No, I'm sorry, Two Dudes and an S. I think that's right. Yeah, Two Dudes and an S. Awesome show. Hey, Justin. What's up, man? Ah, uh, not much. Just playing some boy and his blob. That's a good game. It is, isn't it? Yeah. You want to talk about it for a little while? Let's do it, man. <laughs> All right. So, a boy and his blob. But guess yeah. what? What? If you haven't noticed, I'm a little extra excited today. I am too. Yes. Uh, you know, normally we do a Justin's historical tidbits and trivia, but um, I don't think we should today because... No. We have a you special wanna... surprise. Yeah. Uh, so we got the opportunity, the, well, the uh, pleasure, the whatever... To honor. Honor. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. It's yes. a difficult word that I couldn't think of. Well, it, uh, starts, the, it starts with an H, but it's silent, kind of, you know? It's like yeah. honor. I, I understand. Yeah. It's really tricky. It's weird. Word. It's weird. But anyway, we got the honor to sit down and talk to, <clears throat> talk to the one and only David Crane, whose name, that, that's actually the name that you see on the corner of the box that, uh, that says this is his game. Yeah. We talked to the man himself, the man who created this game, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, what better history on the game than speaking with the man who made it? And now it's time for Justin's Historical Tidbits and Trivia. Hello, everybody. Uh, we have a special treat for you. On the phone with Justin and I uh, is David Crane, the legendary David Crane. Uh, of course, you know we're doing a, a show today about a boy and his blob, and David was the creator of a boy and his blob. So, David, we're really, really glad that you were able to join us, and we're very thankful that you took the time to join us. And welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um. I guess I want to start out, you know, before we get into a boy and his blob, I have just a few questions about just the NES in general and working on the NES and just the time period. Cause we're young and a lot of our listeners are kind of young. We're around 30. So we're in the late twenties, early thirties. A lot of us were young around the time, but what was the, what was the culture like at the time when the NES was coming out? I know we had just kind of had kind of a scare with the video game industry a little bit earlier. And I was just kind of wondering what the culture was like around that time. Well, as you say, um, you know, the video game business really began in Silicon Valley with Atari as the big guy um, and a lot of other smaller companies or smaller attempts at video games. But, um, you know, Atari was kind of the leader. And um, the video game business boomed, you know, there was a huge growth in the early 80s. And it, it grew so fast that what happened was a number of companies came into being to attempt to capitalize on the video game business. Um, My co-founders of Activision and I were really the first. We created the first third-party developer of video game cartridges. A first-party game is made by the same company that makes the hardware console. So Atari made first-party games for the Atari 2600 and Mattel made first-party games for the Intellivision. 
what we did at Activision was we were the first company to do third-party development. So we made games for the Atari, we made games for the Intellivision, and we watched the game systems as they came out, and the, when they got big enough to make sense, we would then reverse engineer their hardware, figure out how to make games, and then make games for them. And Activision's success was meteoric, to say the least. Um, and other people looked at that and said, hey, I can do that. And they didn't really realize that it's, it's not a simple matter of just putting a couple programmers in a room to make a video game. Uh, you know, video game is both left and right brain skills required. You have to be artistic and creative and highly technical. And um, so a lot of companies started up, and they tried to hire game designers and programmers and pretty much failed. And so there were hundreds of horrible games made on the system. And that caused the crash in the early 80s of the video game business, say, 84, 85, somewhere in there. Um, then Nintendo sees this, and they have this little game call system they call the Famicom in Japan. And um, they, they realize that the problem that caused the crash was too many people making too many games without any quality control. So they put a, um, a patented chip inside their cartridge that they controlled, and you couldn't make games for their system unless you licensed the patent for this little chip. And by doing that, they could control the, um, the output of video games for their system. So they set it set in place all sorts of very restrictive rules of we, we approve the game concepts you're working on, we approve the games, we score the games. If they don't make a certain score, you can't put them out. And, you know, really very heavy-handed control in an attempt to, um, to protect against another crash. So it's kind of interesting. We went from a freewheeling um, video game culture in the early days where you could really experiment and do all sorts of things of whatever you wanted and went into a culture where Nintendo controlled everything. The games you did, the quality of the games, and, you know, quality is a, you know, it's a subjective thing. If Nintendo decides that, you know, I don't like that game, all of a sudden it becomes a low-quality game and it doesn't get put out. So it was, it was pretty much a backlash. It was, I think they went too far, um, but it worked for them. And so, you know, the short answer of how the culture was is the culture was now no longer in the hands of the creators, but it was now in the hands of Nintendo. Huh. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, you kind of touched on it a little bit. My next question was going to be about Activision, because I know you're one of the co-founders of the first third-party development company. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? I mean, what... What's what spurred that? Well, that came largely due to Atari falling apart, I have to say. Um, I worked with Nolan Bushnell at Atari, and Nolan, um, you know, people fault him, his ability to operate a company or run a company, but as far as ideas, he was the tops. He, he basically would look at something, and if he could describe it as neat, that was his word. His four-letter word was neat. <laughs> and if he saw something, he said, that's neat. 
he would put money behind it and get it built. And um, <clears throat> But Atari grew, and Atari got sold to Warner Communications, and they tried to make it corporate, and they brought in management that didn't know anything about video games, and they thought that was going to be okay. And the place was pretty much falling around, falling apart around us. And um, the apocryphal story was one day marketing, Atari marketing, circulated a memo of the top 20 selling game cartridges of the previous year. And basically they were saying, let's let the developers know what is selling so that they can you know, make better selling games. They were basically giving us this list and saying, make more like this, which is really a stupid, a stupid concept because mm -hmm. my best success in making video games has been making video games that are different than what's out there you know, at the time I'm developing it. Um, you know, there were all sorts of space games, and I was so sick of space games. I mean, I, I did a space game, and then there were a bunch of space games. Then I got sick of space games, so I did a sports game, and then everybody started doing sports games. So uh, since it's a year before, you know, from the time I started develop, to develop a game, it's at least a year before it's seen in the market, what you really have to do is predict what are people going to want to be playing next year, not what are people playing this year or what did they play last year. So it's kind of a stupid concept, but the marketing sent out this memo. And the four of us who ended up founding Activision, we worked together, we lunched together, and we looked at this memo together, and we said, hey, wait a minute. 60% of the sales on this list were the games made by the four of us. 20% of this list were people who have since left the company. And of the 30 people, other 30 other people in the department um, accounted for 20% of those sales. And it was kind of an open secret that Atari had sold $100 million worth of video game cartridges the previous year. So it's not too difficult to take $100 million and take 60% of it and say, we generated $60 million for Atari last year and we're making $20,000 salaries. <clears throat> <laughs> so we said, you know, this, this says that apparently the four of us are good at this. Apparently there's something about what we do that people like to play, um, just like anybody has a favorite author. Um, if people like our games and they come back and buy our games, then that's a good thing. We went to Atari and said, you know, I mean, we ought to be rewarded for that in some way. And we had a meeting with the president of Atari at the time and had this discussion with him, and he looked us in the eye and he said, you know, the person on the assembly line who builds the cartridges is important too because if he didn't build them, uh, we couldn't sell them. So as far as Atari is concerned, you're no more important than the person on the assembly line who assembles the cartridges. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we came out of that meeting, and the senior vice president who was in there looked us in the eye, and he said, it's been nice knowing you, <laughs> because it was pretty clear that that kind of a statement doesn't fly with creative people, and uh, mm -hmm. that became the founding of Activision. Huh. You know, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but that kind of segues into another question I kind of had. You and, and your group of guys that you were kind of mentioning, you kind of pioneered getting developers noticed as well, didn't you? I mean, weren't they, like you said, they were kind of just seen as assembly line workers, and then 
all of a sudden the name your names are appearing in the credits and they're appearing before the titles of the games and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was a founding principle of Activision. Um, it came about for a couple reasons. One, if people like our games, then like the author of a book, we might as well be credited as the authors. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for the company either. If um, you know somebody looks for the next David Crane or Steve Cartwright game, um, then you know it's good for sales as well. And the person that we got together with as the CEO, Jim Levy of Activision, had just come from the record business where they did give credit to artists. And so it was real easy for him to see the marketing benefits of it. So, yeah, it became a founding principle that um, these creations, you know, are creative works by an author, and the author should be credited. Now, it was easier back then because it was a one-person project. Um, on a game like Pitfall, I drew every pixel of art, uh, designed the concept, wrote the sound effects, drew every, every background, wrote every line of code, play-tested every movement of the joystick. You know, it was a one-man, one-game project. So it was very easy to put my name on it. It became more difficult when there's 100 people on the project later. Right, right. Well, talking about a boy and his blob, um, I want to get into the discussion about the game. I, I just want to know how you came up with the idea for a boy and his blob. It seems kind of crazy, like a crazy idea. Of course, in a good way because it works. But you know, I also I heard that Herculoids was kind of an inspiration. Um, what? So, what's the story behind a boy and his blob? Well, no drugs were involved. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yes, it was kind of a crazy idea. And certainly, I have, I'm of the generation where I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons when they were good Saturday morning cartoons. Can't imagine what kids do these days, you know. I guess they've got the Internet. Um, but uh, so, I mean, for example, the running across the heads of the alligators in Pitfall was inspired by the intro to a cartoon called Heckle and Jekyll, where the two talking magpies would run across the snapping jaws of alligators and you know those kinds of things have their influences in the games that I've done um, and in a boy in his blob um, I remembered the Herculoids which had two blobs one was called gloop and the other one was smaller called gleep I don't know if they were related um, <laughs> but anyway I mean at the the age when I was watching those cartoons, very impressionable, the idea of having a sidekick that is a shape-changing you know, blob is pretty powerful. I mean, all the things you could think of that you can't do that that character could do for you. So, yes, I was thinking of doing another adventure game similar to Pitfall, and I, um, I wanted to make it a tool-using adventure game, but I hated the the inventory screens that you have to go to or the 10 button presses you have to memorize to be able to switch from one weapon to the other or one tool to the other. And so I thought about this shape changer. And after that, I can't really tell you how it all came together. I mean, shape changer, I don't know why jelly beans, just why not? You know, when you're <laughs> thinking of these ideas, you just say, okay, well, beat him a jelly bean and he changes shape based on the flavor. And then, of course, that built the whole backstory of 
being from Blobolonia and eating too much candy and not having vitamins and you know a lot of that stuff just kind of comes as you're going in the development. But um, I just found it kind of cool to have this this sidekick that I mean, what games had a sidekick where if you lose him, you lose the game. I mean, you've got to you got to use him, so you got to keep him around. You got to protect him in some ways. And um, then he became the um, the tool kit based on the number of jelly beans and the flavors you have in your backpack. Yeah, I think it's a, it's it's a really cool idea and it's a really cool mechanic. And the buddy mechanic had rarely, if ever, even been used in a game before. Um, were there any games out around that time that had tried to use a buddy mechanic and... I mean, that helped inspire you, or are you kind of the first to do this? And what kind of development challenges were you faced with trying to implement this, you know, having a buddy follow you around a blob that you, you know, had to keep up with? Well, the um, there were a number of challenges, not the least of which was um, Imagineering, Gary Kitchen's company, had been doing development for the NES. They were... I think the first licensed developer, well, they were one of the early licensed developers, and then they became the first Nintendo licensed publishers, or one of, um, when they created Absolute Entertainment, which was just a brand name for that company. And <clears throat> so they now had a slot. They had an opportunity to do one NES game for, for Christmas in that year. And they looked at the um, the schedule <clears throat> of when the game had to be sent to Nintendo for approval and all that and said, you know, we have to actually have this game done by CES, which was in June. And it was that was six weeks away by the time they had a, a license. <coughs> so I... Um, I don't know, Gary and I talked about it. We said, you know, we got to make a NES game. we got this real opportunity. It's the first. It's going to, it's got to be good. And, and so I had been toying with this idea of using a blob, doing a tool, using adventure game this way. And, and it all kind of came together very quickly that, all right, we got to get started. And, um, so if you look at it, you know, Absolute had not yet published their own, a Nintendo game, or a NES game, which meant other people in the company had to start developing the audio drivers and the video compressors and all of the things necessary to make this happen while I started working on the game itself. And then every artist in the company was going to get involved in trying to make these trans these transformations that the blob would go through. And... Um, you know, the six-week schedule to do a nine-month game, um, it's pretty challenging. So Gary and I both got on it. I did uh, Earth, and he did Blobolonia, kind of sharing a set of code, but forking off in, in his direction to do all of Blobolonia. Uh, we had the artists give us the first state and then the final state of the latter, for example, and then while the game was underway, they could be working on all the interim states to make the transformations. and It all had to come together, and it all came together in about the last two days before we went to CES. <laughs> wow. And, and we, we weren't getting much sleep. 
I, um, I rented a flop house near the office in New Jersey. I'm in California, but I moved out there for the last month of the project and um, would just work 16 hours and walk home for four hours of sleep and roll out of bed, roll back, and start writing code. And um, it was even worse then because we got to CES when we had to demo the game all day during the, during the show, and bugs started showing up in the code while we're playtesting it in front of customers. And so we'd go back after the show closed and work all night fixing bugs and burning new EPROMs and bringing new versions out and eventually sent it off to uh, Nintendo at the day after CES, which was our deadline. Hmm. Wow. That's, a pretty, that's yeah. definitely a pretty tight schedule. I can imagine that was pretty tough. Well, ironically, you know, Nintendo can break their own rules as much as they want, but as far as the third parties are concerned, you had a rigid date or they wouldn't even review your game, then they score your game and that sort of thing. And so we killed ourselves to get it done by early June. And I'm working on another game later that year in about September. And I get a phone call that says, Nintendo so loves your game that they want to change. And I'm saying, well, wait, wait a minute. We had to have this thing done by June for this to even make Christmas, right? Oh, don't worry about that. It'll still make Christmas. You can actually submit a new version in September, and we'll rush it through and we'll get it built. <laughs> and... And apparently it was the rage in the halls of Nintendo of playing this game. And um, so much so that they kind of took a little ownership interest in it and said, you know, this, could be, this would be better if you do this, or I have a problem with that. And I actually had to make a, a late change in, I think it was late September. seems like it was like, you know, in the 20th or something. And we still got uh, finished goods shipped to us by Thanksgiving, which is when you have to have them if you're going to get them in stores for Christmas. Wow. That's that's crazy. Um, so wh the different transformations, I just want to know, I mean, was it, did you think of the transformations uh, before you made the game? Or did you, as you were making the game, you thought of all these different transformations that he could do uh, to help the game along? Or It was um, an iterative process. I mean, to, to navigate... We needed ladders, just like Pitfall 2 had ladders, and we felt we needed bridges. Um, and, you know, pretty much I could do a, a full navigation just using those two. But as I was drawing the world and saying, okay, well, you know, if I put a ledge here, how could I get to a ledge there? And I thought, well, let's have Bob transform into a trampoline, and we'll bounce up and do this. And once I had a trampoline transformation in the design, I could put um, treasures that he could only get to by bouncing up on a trampoline and and things like that. And then we'd brainstorm some enemy like the snake that's in the, the lower thing and, and consider if there's a, a way to turn the blob into something that, that deals with that. And so you, you're working on this thing, um, not a lot of time, of course, but as you're laying out the world, you can you envision um, you know the tricks, the the challenges that you're putting in the player's face, and that sometimes leads you to think of a tool that you're going to need the blob to transform into. Hmm. Um, and a, in a few cases, 
there were transformations that I wanted, but I, you know, sent the artist out to say, you know, here, draw this. And, you know, those, those are 8-bit uh, characters with a little bit of color. I mean, there's not a lot you can do uh, in 8 bits to make something look realistic. Um, all my career, I have chosen graphics that look good in 8 bits rather than graphics that uh, look realistic and or that represent a realistic item but are, you know, are not good looking in 8 bits. That's why my slot machine uses cactuses and cars and things instead of lemons and cherries um, back in the Atari days. Um, so then at one point I finally just said, you know, I wrote a list of about 20 things and I sent them off to the artist and said, here, here, draw these. And just the, give me an icon that looks like a bird. Give me an icon that looks like a snake or whatever. And I reviewed that list and said, you know, this bird looks like a bird. So I can use it because people will know what it is. Last thing you want to do is say, this is a bird, even though you can't tell, you know. <laughs> um, so a lot of, or a few of the uh, transformations were then made based on what could look good on the NES in 8 bits. Hmm. That's, yeah, that, worked, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, did you have a favorite transformation that you did? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, the latter, or the, you know, the latter was fun. I, I liked the ones that extended, like the ladder and the bridge. Um, otherwise, the hole was useful, obviously. Mm -hmm. The, um, the ability to turn the guy and turn the blob into a bird and have him fly up to where you are after you've bounced up on the trampoline or whatever is kind of fun because now you had to be thinking not only how do I get up there, but how do I get the blob up there with me and, uh, you know, things like that. They were all fun. Uh, how about was there any that you wanted to include but didn't get a chance to? Um, you know, there is the story of the, the wall um, at one point, I had created a brick wall, which was, ironically, it was the exact brick wall out of Pitfall 2, or not a Pitfall, uh, yeah, the subterranean cavern of Pitfall. But then a brick is a brick. I mean, it's three pixels of red and one pixel of white. But, um, <clears throat> but anyway, I, I had a grape-flavored jelly bean that would turn the blob into a wall, and the pun there was the Grape Wall of China. <laughs> um, and that would block things like, you know, I believe that that was one of the things that you could attack the snake with. And he would bounce off of it and change his pattern. But um, in the last minute in, the, um, in that September change that I was telling you about, one of Nintendo's biggest problems was one of the executives in the office, lost his blob, and decided that that was a bug. I mean, it was really part of, it's part of the game, you know, making sure that you don't lose your blob. But I had to agree somewhat in that you didn't know you lose the game, and I didn't detect that you've lost the game, and I didn't end the game, so you just sit there looking at it forever, wondering what you're supposed to do. So, 
So I changed the grape-flavored jelly bean into a ketchup-flavored jelly bean. <laughs> and ketchup is a pun for catch up. And if you've played the game, you know that that's one way to get your blob back to wherever you are, is you throw a ketchup-flavored jelly bean onto the ground, and when it hits the ground, the blob teleports to the location of that jelly bean. But then, if, you, if he were to eat, if the blob were to eat the ketchup-flavored jelly bean, he would turn into a wall. Because all I really did was change the name of the jelly bean from grape to ketchup. All of the code to turn him into a wall is still in the game. So I had to add another little section of code that said, do not eat ketchup-flavored jelly beans. And you will notice that if you try to throw him a ketchup-flavored jelly bean, he scowls at you and refuses to eat it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's cool. Um, I just have a, just a couple more questions. Um, this game seems like it was destined to be like a cartoon series or a movie or a comic book or something. I mean, the cover art to the game on the box art kind of looks like a comic book. Was that ever an intent on your all's part? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the, the, the dream, I guess, the, uh, the holy grail of making a video game is to have a toy line and a series of movies about your character. And um, unfortunately, the, in those days, the video game character didn't get much benefit out of those things. In other words, if you had a very successful character like Pitfall Harry, someone would come to you and say, I want to make a board game, and you license it to them for a you know, 5% com you know, royalty or something, and they go off and do it, and they take the lion's share of the profit. Same thing with the movies. Um, it's just a licensing deal where the movie company makes the movie and makes the profits, but they pay you a percentage for your, you know, your character. And Gary and I looked at each other and said, well, let's just do it all ourselves. Let's make a video game, a movie, and a toy line simultaneously. And Blob was the perfect idea. I mean, Blob plush toys would, would have been perfect. Um, <clears throat> and, of course, you can do anything with a movie that you could do with a game. And we even hired um, a guy who was, he produced a couple of the Transformers animated full-length feature animated films that were done back in that day and hired him to consult or to work on the project so that while the game was being developed, he was developing a script for a movie and negotiating with people for, uh, for toy rights. And unfortunately, um, the money ran out and we had to be able to fund the development of a video game figure out a way to fund the development of a toy line and fund the development of a full-length feature animated movie. And uh, we basically said, you know, we've only got enough money to make the video game, so that's what we're going to do. But it was definitely in the plans from the beginning. All right, well, just to kind of finish up, I just want to know, you've made a lot of games. Where does this game kind of rank in your, in your personal list of favorite games that you've made? <clears throat> Well, each time I'm making a game, um, my favorite game is the one I'm working on because I have to because 
the number of hours and effort that you put into a game, you have to really like it. Right. Um, and then at, when I look back on games, every game that I've done has something cool about it because I, I thought of something new in this game and I did something really technical in that game. So, you know, I could take any one of the games that I did and say, oh, you want to know what's cool about that game, you know. Um, and those are the things that I'm proud of. The things that I'm proud of are the things that are inside that I would have to explain to you. In other words, you don't even notice necessarily as a game player. But Blob was a lot of fun. Um, you know, a lot of things that I wanted to do and I got it done. Um, I mean, a, a good example of what happens during the development is if you turn the Blob into a cola bubble and you climb into the bubble and you go down into the water, you'll notice that there are little bubbles of air that rise from the cola bubble as you're dancing around, as you're you know, moving left and right and picking up treasures or whatever. And it was midnight, three days before the game was due. I had a list of things that I had to finish in the next three days that was absolutely insane. But I'm looking at this, and I said, this thing isn't an underwater bubble unless there's air bubbles coming up out of it. So I woke the artist up. I said, draw me a bubble. And I made the sound effect for the little bubble popping. And about two hours later, I had bubbles rising from the, the bubble and popping. And it's just those little details that even faced with an insane deadline, if you want to make a good game, you've got to leave room for those. You've got to say, it's cool enough. I'm going to take the time. I'm going to lose two extra hours of sleep just to have it in there. And uh, a blob had a number of those neat little features, even given as bad a schedule. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. It's, not, it's yeah. nice that, I, I mean, you can see that in other games that you've made as well, that you put the nice little touches. Like, I, I know we're not talking about Pitfall this episode, but I just, the fact that the animation on Pitfall, Harry, when he's running, actually looks like a guy running from that, you know, that, old of technology, old of hardware. I think that's just really cool. But um, I guess just to finish up, what, what are you doing nowadays? I mean, can you tell us some, something about what you're doing? I mean, are you still in the games industry? Well, I haven't made a game in the last 18 months or so. Um, the cost of making games has gotten so big, and it's so difficult to raise enough money to put professional people on the team that, it's just more effort than I want to go into these days. I mean, I, I used to try to keep track of the account of my games, and the last time I counted, it was right around 100 because I did a number of casual games for online, and um, recently I did some games for MTV. And, and you know, 100 games is a lot. There's, there's a lot there. Um, what I'm doing right now is a lot of less interest to your listeners than the video game stuff. Um, I am working as an expert in patent cases where uh, somebody got a patent in 2004 for something that was done in the video game business 20 years earlier. And um, you know, people come to me and say, can you show me where, where this was done in the video game business as prior art to a patent, that sort of thing. And uh, the primary reason I'm doing it is you'd be amazed, but if, if I went out to get funding for a video game, 
Um, someone who's funding a video game would rather give money to a 25-year-old kid out of Stanford who's never done it before than someone with the experience who's done it for 100 years. And um, yet, in the expert witness field, the more more experience you have, the more value, the more valued you are. Right. So well, that, it's n nice to be valued. Yeah, that makes sense, though. It does. Well, well, David, the part I, about him having experience. For right. The patent, right. Makes sense. Yeah. No, the part about the 25-year-old kid doesn't make sense. No, but the yeah. patent part does. <laughs> yep. Well, we really appreciate it, and we, I'm glad you took some time out of your day. I know it's a Saturday for all of us, but um, we do really appreciate you coming on. This has been a great interview and a great opportunity for us, and we thank you a lot. Well, as I said, I enjoy talking about the old days, so just call me again. You want to go over another game. <laughs> hey, that sounds all right. good. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, David. Thank all righty. Bye. Thank you, bye. Good phone call. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was, so, I just, it, he was way better of an interview than I could have ever imagined. It was, yeah. He, he stole the show. When you, you know, when you have interviews with people, you're concerned about what they're going to say. And, you know, there was no prep in this. We, thought, we didn't send him an email and say, here's what we're going to ask, here's what we're going to talk about. It was just all just on the fly. And he's, uh, you know, you, you worried about your interviewers when they're doing it on the fly. Are they going to be good interviewees? Are they going to say, are they just going to give you one word answers and just kind of not really give you much? Man, he just took off with it. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Yeah. Of course, he's he's a seasoned veteran. I'm sure he's done interviews before and he's been in the industry forever. And mm -hmm. Obviously, he knows his stuff, so that was yeah. really cool. Yeah, it was, really it was cool. awesome. So thank you, David. Uh, for the uh, the wonderful opportunity, and uh, hopefully, like he said, maybe we can get him on the show again and talk about another game that he did. That would be really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. So I guess that pretty much does it for history and trivia. I mean, there's not really much else to talk about. Really, you hear it from the horse's mouth, right? Right. I think it would just embarrass you to try to do some history on that. Yeah, no, definitely for <laughs> me, too. <laughs> Which, yeah. But, the, you know, the only thing about that is the this is the game that would have been perfect for me to talk about history because it's a bunch of white guys that made this game, so I wouldn't be confused on saying any Japanese names. <laughs> That's true. You know, I wouldn't be like... <laughs> I don't, but I, hopefully I wouldn't stumble on uh, David Crane and Gary Kitchen. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike, uh, actually, did you were you able to find this game? And now it's time for Michael's quest to find the cart. Uh, yeah, this is one that I've had since I was younger. One of those mm -hmm. boring old stories. Um, I had it when I was a kid, but the interesting part of this story is I lost it. I, oh. I don't even know what I don't even know what happened to it. Anybody who's out there who collects games and who had games when they were a kid, they know this story. You had that you had these games. You remember playing them as a kid. You know you didn't sell them, but then when you dig out your collection out of the attic or the closet or wherever it's hiding the game's gone and you have no idea what happened to it well mm. that's what happened to me so i had to go back out and buy it again yeah I, it's it's not hard to find so i just went out and bought it but yeah uh you know that, that actually happened to me with another david crane game that we've already talked about actually with ghostbusters i had it as a kid i don't know what happened to it maybe a ghost got it i don't know probably uh, but then I had to buy it again off eBay a few years later. Gee, I wonder what these guys have to say about the game. 
But uh, yeah, this is a good game. You know, it's it's kind of a weird game. Uh, we didn't really talk. Well, we kind of alluded to it with the conversation with David. Was the um, it almost kind of felt like Pitfall in a lot of ways. Um, I played this game before I probably played Pitfall. Um, I did too. So you know, it does. You can see a lot of. You can tell that it's made by the same people. I guess when you, when you see it, and it's not a bad thing at all. I think Pitfall is a great game. Well, Pitfall is like one of the games mm-hmm. of all time, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a legendary game, and to, to mirror—I mean, to mirror kind of the style a little bit of Pitfall is definitely not a, a bad idea. Right. I don't think that you get more—you know—when you're when you're designing games, and uh, you know, David kind of talked about it. When you're designing games, you really want to have that originality. And that's something that me and you have talked about, Mike, is, you know, games today not having originality. You know, it's the, the new Madden, the new um, uh, Call of Duty, Call of Duty, Call of Duty 68, you know. Um, it's just like you're redoing the same game. Yeah, it's a different level. And I'm not even saying that they're bad games. There's just not that many original ideas, I think, anymore. Um, I mean, yes... I know that there are original ideas out there. Don't so don't don't get angry and send me hate mail saying that I'm a <laughs> fool or something. But you know, it just feels like back then, um, you know, there there was more originality. And it's interesting to note when he was talking about the kind of freewheeling days of the uh, of Atari versus uh, Nintendo, uh, kind of put the hammer down and, and were more strict on their games, which. For better or worse, I mean, one way it worked, and we've got a lot of great games out of it, but then you also have to think in the back of your mind what games were shelved because Nintendo didn't approve. Right. You know, um, I can't say that there was a lack of a lot of good games for Nintendo. You can't really say that because there were a lot of good games, but at the same time you you do have to question what would have been or how games would have been different if Nintendo didn't have that final say on what was going to be published yep that's a good point um well this game itself though I when I was younger playing this game I don't know what it was but it just it's another one of those games I, the people out there are going to think I'm just the dumbest kid ever <laughs> this is enough I say this I feel like I say this about every game but this is another game that just completely went over my head I had no idea what I was doing uh, yeah. I just, I would, I mean, I, I knew I could throw jelly beans. I knew I could change the jelly beans. I knew the jelly beans changed the blob, but I really had no idea how to make that work for anything. There was a lot, there's a lot of elements to this game. Uh, you know, and the, the shape changing in the blob, learning the shapes, what the shapes do, what the jelly beans do. It, it can, I guess, be a little more daunting than like uh, Pac-Man where you just eat circles, you know. Mm-hmm. So. What's cool about the jelly beans, though, and learning what the jelly beans do, is the way they design the game. The name of the jelly bean is almost like either a pun or mm-hmm. it kind of rhymes with what it does. So it's easy to learn what they do. It's an so you alliteration. Don't really forget. It's a what? An alliteration. Yes, like the <laughs> tangerine jelly bean is the trampoline. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Or the I guess it was the cola jelly bean. Would make it makes bubble. It's a bubble, like yeah. a cola bubble that you can climb in. I mean, they all make sense. I think it's mm-hmm. really cool. The cinnamon jelly bean turns him into a flamethrower. 
because cinnamon's hot, you know. Yeah. And uh, well, you know, the one that didn't make it on, what he, you know, uh, David was talking about the grape, grape wall, the grape, the grape wall of China. China. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's a great game. And you know, one thing I, I um, have you played the Wii version? I know you asked people on Facebook. I have not. I don't. I, I had. I didn't have a Wii. Actually. It, Side note: I just got a Wii today. This today is the first day I've gotten. Welcome I've to the 21st century, Mike. <laughs> Actually, I got a Wii U. By the way, it's a Wii U. Oh it? wow, even better. Yeah, yeah. They had a great sale. I just I couldn't resist. Anyways, yeah. so I just now got one. So no, I have not played a Boy in the Book. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't either. I don't think a lot of people, not not very many people on Facebook have either. Or, or at least they didn't want to admit to it. Everybody seemed curious like. about it, though. Everybody yeah. seemed to want to know if it was any good. So. Yeah. It would be interesting to play and see what it's like. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the Nintendo version. So, yeah. The, blah Blobalonia, uh, too. That, I love that word. Everything's blob-related. Right. That's cool. And do you know the blob's name? You remember the blob's Blobbert. name? Blobbert. Blobbert. Yes, Blobbert. <laughs> Blobbert the Blob. Yeah, that's a cool name. That's cool, though, that he said that about Pitfall, um, the alligators, because uh, I did like Heckle and Jekyll, the old classic cartoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't remember the Gleep and Glop from Herculoids, but... I don't... Uh, I don't remember that much either. Yeah. Of course, these are cartoons that came out in the 60s. So yeah. yeah. Us seeing them, they would have had to have been reruns, so yeah. they would have had to, you know... The chances yeah. of us seeing them may have been right. hit or miss. Right. But the, I mean, the gameplay, basically, the gameplay centers around, in case anybody doesn't know, I guess we forgot to really tell you what the game's about. The game is a buddy game where you have mm-hmm. a sidekick. Your sidekick is a blob, a little white blob, and you're a little boy with a backpack full of jelly beans, and you're trying to collect treasures so that you can buy vitamins... Mm-hmm. So that you can use the vitamins to shoot the bad guys on Blobalonia. Yes. So you're trying to collect these treasures, and you've got these different kinds of jelly beans that turn that the blob will eat and turn into something like mm-hmm. a ladder or a trampoline or an umbrella or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's how you got to get these tre- these different treasures. And these you you can see these treasures, but you have to figure out how to get to them. You know, yeah. so you got to figure out what to do to the blob to be able to get to the treasure. So it's right. really a puzzle platformer game. You know, right. you can't jump. All you can do is run and then transform the blob. Yeah, it's a it's a great game. Uh, the premise and like you know the origin, you know how original it is. Uh, I think it's a great game. I think it's one of the better ones that we've actually played, or is at least one of my favorites. Yeah, I think it's a game that is going to have personal preference. You have to mm-hmm. you have to be into that type of game. Yeah, and that um, kind of mixed response to it was kind of what the reviews did. Some reviews like gave it like a great review, and some reviews were like, mm, you know, you know yeah. Um, did I le- gra- did I render you spe- speechless? Sorry, I was trying to pull up the. <laughs> I was trying to pull up the instruction manual because I forgot to do it ahead of time. I got um, confused. We had the phone call, and then I had yeah. this other stuff in my head, and I just... Ugh. Too much excitement going on. I'm just too excited today. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to pull up the manual. Okay. 
Yeah, let's but, do some manual. While you're pulling up the manual, were you able to uh, think of any good trophies? Are we jumping straight to trophies? Okay, I was just trying to kill some time to, you know, to, for you we, to get through. No, don't kill time by jumping our segments, man. All right, fine. We'll we go. can just ki- we can kill time by arguing like this. That'd be good enough. Uh, it did when uh, um, David referred to the CES, the 1989 CES. It won Best of Show at the CES. And it won uh, the Parents' Choice Award in 1990 for portraying positive human values and high-quality software, intelligent design, and the ability to hold the player's interest. Yep, that's cool. All right, I got the manual pulled up. All right, that. Okay, uh, where would you like me to start? Would you like the story? The story's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, let's do it. I say, uh, look, he likes them. Likes them? The boy's blob loves them. Jelly beans, that is, and every flavor under the subway, like vanilla, apple, tangerine, cinnamon, cola, coconut, and more. Like many boys in the 21st century, the boy has a buddy from outer space. Wait, what? <laughs> like many boys in the 21st century, the boy has a buddy from outer space. Okay, yeah. we all, it's just like all of us. You know? Well, you know, there was, a, there was this time, that, you know, back then, in the 80s. Where we all thought, in, like, by the year 2000, and I remember having conversations like this when I was a kid, we were going to be driving flying cars, we were going to be living in space. Things in the 2000s were a lot different back in the 80s than what they actually turned out to be like. Yeah. They turned out to be much more like the 80s than <laughs> we ever imagined them to be. Yeah. Um, I guess by then, when they thought when they wrote this that we're all going to have buddies from outer space. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Blob, his full name is Blobbert, came to Earth looking for someone to help him to defeat the evil emperor. That's how he met the boy. Um, To defeat the evil emperor, the boy and the Blob need a good supply of vitamins. And to get vitamins, they'll need money. To get money, they'll need to search the underground caverns for hidden treasures and diamond stones. Yeah, Ooh, so, yeah, that's awesome. That's pretty much it. So you're Excited. searching for searching for things. Um, the biggest thing about this game, to me, is there's a lot of thinking involved, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of um, I don't know, remembering. You have to. You basically need to make a map. Mm-hmm. And I know we've made fun of people on a, on our back when we were on Retro Thought Pod. We made fun of some people for making maps. <laughs> but when I went to play the, <laughs> but when I went to play this game, I had to make a map. Like the oh, yeah. other this past week, when I was trying to make play the game, I had to make a map to remember mm-hmm. how to get the treasures. And mm-hmm. I still didn't get all the treasures. I, I mean, this is a game that it's it's going to take some plan to get for me to get all mm-hmm. the treasures. Fortunately, making a map, I can go back and play it again fairly easily. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think the graphics on it are really good too. I mean, the backgrounds, especially yeah. that initial background when you first step out of the house or whatever, mm-hmm. that cityscape behind um, the boy and the blob is just—it's—it's it's weird because it looks unlike any other NES game that I can think of. It's really detailed and right, and looks—it looks really cool. Yeah. Most of the time, the backgrounds are kind of bland on NES right. games. Right. No, it, no that is a good point. Um, 
you know, and I think that uh, I, I, co- I commend David and Public about when they were designing. They made sure that it was going to look good on the 8-bit, not just try to make things that they wanted. It also had to look good, you know. Yeah, that was cool. And the music in the game, it's it's there's really only one or two songs in the game, mm-hmm. but they're catchy and they don't really get on my nerves, which is good. Whenever there's a game that only has one song, the big deal is whether or not that song gets on my nerves. Yeah. Because a lot of times they do. And this is this is a song that I can listen to just over and over again, not really pay a whole lot of attention to. I think it's a good it's a cool little jingle, uh-huh. but it's not one that I'm going to be putting in my stereo driving to work with, but yeah. it fits it fits the game. It's pretty cool. Did you the, there was a composer uh, in this game, the composer music. And his name was Mark Van Heck. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. What else has he done? Uh, he does. I can't find much on him. So maybe if the listeners know anything about Mark Van Heck, or maybe Mark Van Heck is listening. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe that was maybe that was something we should have asked uh, David. Yeah. What's Mark Van Heck doing? <laughs> what's he doing right now? He, he's like, well, he's actually at my house. You want to talk to him? <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. um, I don't know What else? do you got anything else to say about the game I mean just basically it's a game to play if you like thinking and it's and, and figuring out puzzles it's not a game to play if you want to run and jump and right. shoot, shoot people and all this kind of stuff it's really more kind of like a point and click adventure but yeah. it's simplified to the point where you don't have to worry about all these items and stuff in your inventory. You just yeah. all you got to worry about is the blob and having jelly beans for the blob. Right. We're, well, the listeners can rest at ease. I uh, did find where Mark Van Heck is. Uh, he did a lot of games for Absolute Entertainment. Actually, uh, he was involved in, uh, or as part of the composing, the music. Mm-hmm. He was involved in the Ghostbusters too. Um, a Boy and His Blob in the Rescue of Princess Blobette for Game Boy. Mm-hmm. He did uh, The Simpsons, Bart vs. Space Mutants. Oh, that's cool. I like the music in that game. Uh, he did uh, Home Alone. He did Barbie. Um, he did Jordan vs. Bird 101. Um, Jeopardy. I mean, there's just, it's too many to, to uh, read off here, but it's a pretty amazing. He's done a cool. lot. And a lot of it has been with uh, associated with games that David Crane was also. I think Home Improvement, Power Tool, Pursuit for the Super Nintendo. I think David Crane was involved in that. Um, so, yeah. Nice. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yep, <sounds> <laughs> I'm going to have to go buy some jelly beans after this. I, that's what I was thinking, man. I was thinking earlier today... Uh, and this past week, I was playing, you know, playing the game. I was thinking, man, I want some jelly beans. It's odd that uh, this has come up. This game, we played this game this week because my daughter actually got some jelly beans from um, uh, as a gift for Easter, and she doesn't really care for them, so I've been eating them. Nice. And uh, <laughs> and uh, they're they're Russell Stover jelly beans. I think Russell Stover jelly beans are like the best ever. Are they chocolate? No. No, they're just like jelly beans. They're just really good. Hmm. 
Do they have a... Welcome to Two flavor? Dudes in a Mess, sponsored by Russell Stover. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have a ketchup flavored jelly bean? I don't know. Not in this bag. Okay. Retrofitted trophies. Okay, so now you can take us to the trophies if you want to. Did you make any trophies with this game? No. You know, I didn't. Man, need to. I just it was, it was kind of. I know. I I think you know. Here's the thing, Mike. And here, this is my excuse to this. We were like so excited about this David Crane interview. So we were so focused on not screwing that up that uh, we were just kind of like, the rest will fall into place. And it did it. You know, I think it has. <laughs> it has. It's successful. It's I a think big show. I think outside of the David Crane portion of this show, the listeners are going to be like, wow, these guys are really, they're losing it. Oh, uh, no. I've got one. Uh, okay. The uh, Tom Arnold would be impressed. Trophy. Well, I won that, I'm sure. I've got a pretty good score. No, it's not going to the score this time. Oh. It's going to the best podcast about a show about a boy and his blob. And that's going to us <laughs> for having David Crane on a show. We're Thank probably you, the only podcast talking about a boy and his blob also. But, yeah. yeah. Alright, well I got, I got one, I got one. Um, okay. Okay, I, I got, I'll do a Putin, I'll do a Putin. Uh, this one's called... Uh, <laughs> Putin rejoiced, uh-huh. and this is getting the blob to eat a ketchup flavored jelly bean. Oh. It's impossible to get because the blob won't yeah. eat it. But if you could force it down his throat because he hates ketchup jelly beans, Putin mm. would rejoice. And the main reason is because uh, a lot of people don't know this. Putin is actually a ketchup lover. Mm-hmm. Well, he ketchup. also just likes to force things on people. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We should probably give the... I, you know, what's funny is um, the, the Tom Arnold thing just took off from the get-go. Like, we did that the, the third episode and people just went crazy over it. We've been trying this Putin thing for a few weeks now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just not being picked up. Uh, maybe because Putin's not the best guy in the world right now. I don't know. S- speaking of trying to shove things on people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're really trying to force this Putin thing down in everybody's throats, and it's just not happening. Nobody's, everybody's like, no, uh, stick with the Tom Arnold. Don't, don't try to venture out. But Tom Arnold would be impressed with this podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you get a did you get a high score? Because I do have a high score. Let's hear your high score. It's thirty thousand. Somehow I got thirty thousand even. That sounds like a lie. I got a picture to prove it. I would have made it like 30,028 just to make it believable. I will post the picture. All right, I, I'm expecting it. to see the picture. If it's higher than 30,000, I'm sorry, but I know it's at least 30,000. <laughs> now you're backtracking. Yeah. So uh, if there is a other Tom Arnold that would be impressed trophy that goes to the high score, it goes to me. Right. And maybe one of our listeners. Or maybe a listener if they can do Actually, I guarantee you they can do better because I only got maybe 10 treasures out of the 20-something that you can get. It's a hard game to sit down and do. Like, you know, you, you mentioned that earlier. That it's a hard game to just, like, sit down and play. Yeah, And, and get a high score. Yep, sure is. 
Um, I don't know. It's a it's a fun game to just play every now and then. I don't know. It's just it's weird because I really like the game, but I find it hard to sit down and try to beat it. Like I don't like I play it and I don't feel like I can beat it. I feel like I it would take me forever to figure out how to beat it because it's it's such a complex game mm-hmm. as far as getting all these these treasure chests. I just I don't know. Anyways, moving on. Man, I'm not sure how I feel about this game. I wonder what the two dudes think. How about a rating? I think everybody's probably going to figure out what our rating system is going to be on this show. Um, let's give it. A, let's give it a jelly bean flavor. Well, I am going to give it a watermelon jelly bean because watermelon's my favorite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like the game, and so uh, yeah. So you're going to give it your favorite jelly bean? Yes. Wow, that's like giving it a 10 out of 10. It's a good game. Okay, all right. Well, I am going to give it a lime-flavored jelly bean. Mm -hmm. Because that's my favorite. Oh, so you're going to give it a 10 out of 10, too. I am. 10 out of 10 for me. All right. All right. Sweet. We didn't come up with very creative scores this time. No. Well, I'm you telling know, you, man. I'm telling people, you, we got so distracted by this interview. People, people aren't going to listen anyway. They're going to listen to the first 30 minutes of the show, 30, 40 minutes, whatever. We talked to David Crane, and they're going to be like, okay, these idiots are talking now, so I'm going to turn this off. Yeah, so nobody's listening. Anybody, <laughs> who's, anybody who's listening at this point, wow. Yeah, wow. congratulations. Yeah, that's quite the, quite the accomplishment. You, Tom Arnold would be impressed. Tom Arnold would be impressed. If you're still listening to the show. Now that uh, we got, speaking of which, now that we've got the interview process kind of hammered out and good, uh, we can uh, be looking forward to our one-year anniversary with Tom Arnold interview. Is it time to start uh, pushing for Tom Arnold? Maybe not quite yet. It's not quite, you know, maybe a little too early. But we don't know how long this is going to take. That's true. Well, you know, you don't. Our one-year anniversary is like eight months away. Uh, I don't. I think if we, if he, if he's, he's going to say yes or no, pretty early, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you don't want to like text him or you know, message him for eight months. <laughs> Might get a well, I mean, order. if he says no, then you're going to, we're going to have to keep asking him. That's true. Okay, okay, let's do some feedback before we... Okay. Maybe this will help pull our pull us back together. All right. Feedback. All right. Okay. Uh, Jeff Upel, Upel, which, by the way, I don't know if I read his feedback about us pronouncing his name, but remember the episode where we said uh, Jeff Upel and we kind of made, made fun of it because we couldn't pronounce it? No. Well, he said, go ahead. You can pronounce it however you want. It's cool. So I'm going to call him... I'm going to say Jeff Upel. He says, I can only guess what sort of shenanigans this podcast will have. You guys do a such great job on the history of games. Can't wait, can't wait to hear what you do. Don't let me down. Well, well Jeff, I don't down. think I don't think we let you down on this one. As far as history is concerned. Gameplay, trophies, game rating, we probably did let you down. But since you only ask us not to let you down on history. Mission accomplished. Right. Um, Adam Ford says, in the words of Megamind, it's all about presentation. Maybe not a perfect quote, but I think you guys will do great with it. I don't get it. But yeah. 
Let's see, Jeremy Finn, F-E-I-N, Finn. Is that I'm right? I say Fain. I think it's Fain. It probably Fain. is Fain. You're probably right. You're probably right. Well, he gave us he gave us one of the the biggest, bestest uh, feedbacks we've got for this show. It says, yeah. "I remember obtaining this game as a Hanukkah present. I didn't understand the point other than that it was a silly puzzle game. I got it after a few minutes. The punch jelly bean causes a hole. The apple turned the blob into a jack." so on and so forth. It was weird when the boy ran at times, it would turn into Wiley Coyote running off a cliff and trying to run back to solid ground. Not to mention the boy's morality. No power meter. When he died, the blob frowned because he lost a friend or no more jelly beans. (laughs) Yeah. This game has pros and cons. Cons, no map, too many pits. Not too many things to battle. A crappy boss fight. Pros, something ambitious but memorable. He says he owned the Game Boy version and the Wii. He wishes there was more than just puzzle solving and more challenges. Still, it has cult status. He gives it two and a half bags of jelly beans. Oh. Out of how many bags? I don't know. I'm going to assume two and a half bags out of three. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That only makes sense. Yeah. All right. So that was good feedback. Yeah. He, did, he does. He does bring up some good points. A map would have helped. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I just made my own map on some graph paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, and I never made it far enough to get into a boss fight, so I don't know what he's talking about. Okay. Okay, that's pretty much the show. So yeah, check that's... us out on uh, nesdudes.com. You know, we got some write-ups on the shows. And you can find all of our shows there. And of course, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and review us on iTunes. We greatly appreciate that. We and didn't get any new five-star reviews. I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. Yep, but if you do give us a five-star, we'll read it on the show. So remember that. Mm-hmm. And uh, You also get entered in to win a game. But I don't. Have we mentioned that on the show? I think we've mentioned it on the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. May 1st, we're giving away a game to somebody in our review our review group mm-hmm. that somebody that's given us a review. So, so if you it. want to enter it in, there's about 29, 28 or 29 people in that list right now. Yeah. So it's a small pool, big chance to win. All you got to do is leave us a review. All right. All right, that's pretty much it. An awesome interview and a bunch of random rambling from two dudes. So, basically like a normal show, but just with an awesome interview. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. All right. See you guys next week. Here comes the sounds. Bye. Bye.